Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Razzle Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. This is episode 110 of Americans Watching the Footy, our round 14 recap. I'm Benjamin Castle, alongside my brother Ethan in South San Francisco, California. And Ethan, I think this may have been the best round of the season. None of the games are all that close, but I, I know what you're going at here. It's that the Eagles didn't play. That is exactly it. And also, well, there was one blowout, but that's half of what we usually have. Yeah, there was a matchup where we didn't really expect one. Uh... I'm trying to find, like, common themes across this round, and really all I can come up with is home teams won. The only game where the technically home team didn't win, the other team also calls Marvel their home, so we'll call it a draw. I mean, we didn't get, like, you know, the bell sound effect after every Bulldogs goal, but but it was it was a good round for the home teams. It was not such a good round for teams coming off buys. Teams coming off buys are now... One in five. So uh, if that affects any of your tips next week, we'll understand why. I mean, some big games for those teams coming off buys. Those should be fun. That has me like cautiously optimistic now that I think about it. With Geelong hosting Melbourne on Thursday? Yeah, slightly optimistic. Not not overly, but slightly. I mean, we can get into talking about the Cats right away here because... The round started with Port Adelaide 16-14-110, defeating Geelong 11-6-72. Cats had a six-goal to two first quarter. Looked like things were starting to go okay for them, and then Port just restored their control through the middle. Obviously, Dangerfield getting hurt in a marking contest did not help at all. Was rib and lung, I believe, and tried to play through to the best of his ability, but he'll be sidelined again. Is that another medium-term injury? I don't know. What I do know is I'm less pessimistic about this game than most fans seem to be. Maybe because I just loved what I saw early. They came out ready to play. They came out with a lot of intensity. Ultimately, the biggest issue I had out of this game is that the defense is just not up to standard. This is now the fifth time the Cats have given up 100 points this year, which is four more times than last year. I'll throw out the one against Essendon because there were some garbage time goals in that. But we know the midfield's not great. Even with a healthier group, you had the return of Max Holmes and Mitch Duncan, along with the brief return to Dangerfield. But this team's blueprint for success last year was really good forward play, really good defense, and a sufficient midfield. A sufficient midfield that, kind of like Ports has been able to do, is able to utilize their speed to move the ball quickly enough to the stronger parts of the oval, though. Report really, it's their midfield from which their best play is generated. I guess that's part of a difference there. I mean, you look at the points from clearance 45 to 8 in Port's favor when teams average 32 points from clearance. 
This team, at the start of the year, one of the things that had carried over from last year was that we were really good at getting stoppage clearances, and that hasn't happened so much this year, and that's a concern. But yeah, my my biggest issues are pretty much all defensively. Basically, Sam DeConing played a really nice first half and then struggled in the second half. Zach Guthrie was a bright spot. Tom Stewart was fine, but Jack Henry basically had both Todd Marshall and Jeremy Finlayson pulling him around on a leash, and that just can't happen. Like Jack Henry's a quality player. I think he's one of the more clutch players on this team, but he's got to be better if you're going to have a shot at beating a team like that, especially when you're giving up clearance after clearance and allowing teams to just run through the middle. How would you have solved that kind of matchup-wise then? Because you had to deal with Dixon, Marshall, Finlayson. Where exactly, and if you're trying to keep Stewart as still somewhat of a looser center half back, was the solution for him to have a steadier assignment? Or I, I think so. I don't know if that would have solved all of it. No matter how you drew it up, Henry was going to have to be better one-on-one than he was, and he was not good. And I think that would be very hard to hide from. Other interesting thing, Jed Buse hardly was involved, but he made this great play to basically cause like an 11-point swing. Yeah, I remember that. Or a 12-point swing, actually. So he prevented an 11-point swing, and it turned into a 12-point swing the other way. So he came in for a great spoil on Jed McEntee that led to a rush the other way, put the cats up 45-24. But after that, I mean, that was like all I noticed of him. I'm not sure if I didn't notice him because he was keeping someone locked down or if I didn't notice him because he just didn't do much. What I did notice was it was a quiet night for Jeremy Cameron and Chris Scott kind of let into him after the third quarter, which I think was really good. That's one of the reasons I'm encouraged is that nobody's getting preferential treatment because of what they've done in the past. You know, everyone's got to pull their weight, and someone like Jeremy Cameron needs to pull more weight than the average person, and in this game, he did not do that, and I think there's going to be a good sense of accountability, and that's going to be handled. Looking at some of the the strengths for Port, and I guess this also highlights eliteness for Geelong. Hitouts plus 19 to Port, and they did create a lot of advantage off of those. Scott Lysette has had a great resurgence this past month, but Mark Litzaz had to carry a lot of weight. And obviously, you know, there are benefits of not having John Seglar into the lineup. He was a late out with an inductor injury, which brought Zach Tui back in. But Litzaz would have been a really nice piece to be able to slide back into defense more often. Instead, he had to have that role following Lysette along the length of the oval most of the time. And it's pretty clear that the Cats do need a clearer ruck solution until the young guys that they're developing and Toby Conley and Phoenix Foster are AFL ready. Yeah, that is something where, you know, Henry needed to step up and didn't. If you have Blitzovs able to take on that role, that's great. I still think they were better off not playing Segler, even though it did kind of handcuff what Blitzovs had to do at times. And they had so many different guys going for ruck contests. Tom Atkins even got a couple of them. Deconing had a few. Tom Hawkins obviously got them forward. I was fine with that. It was just, like, I'd rather take my chances with how does Jack Henry do in those contests than playing John Segler altogether. I think it was the right move, and it just didn't work in this case. Uh, on Port's side, that third quarter where they really turned the game around, you know, second quarter, yes, they won it 20-7, to but it felt more even. It felt like, all right, both teams are kind of settling into the flow of the game now. And then the third quarter... It was just an onslaught. It was a 43 to 19 quarter, seven goals to three. And once Port had gone up by like 11, I had thought, okay, they've made their push. Now we got to respond. And we just didn't. 
we didn't respond. But I thought the two biggest things, Willem Drew had a phenomenal third quarter, and Sam Powell Pepper, who like, didn't touch the ball at all in the first quarter, really turned it on after that. And I think there's a clear recipe to success for this Port Adelaide team that we saw. Those two really need to get more credit, and one who did get a bunch of credit and I think is continuing to get more recognition is Dan Houston. Houston with 31 disposals and 571 meters gained. The only one with like big stats out of those three, but one of the most consistent movers out of halfback, able to take contests further up the ground. His ability to accelerate play with his accurate and long kicking has played to the advantage of the speed in their midfield. And yes, we've both been high on Willem Drew and Sam Powell Pepper's ability for a while. I feel like Powell Pepper would be a player that American football fans would really enjoy watching with how he attacks the contest, how he lowers his head, gets physical with it, and then can finish in front of goal or can finish with a really impressive rolling goal from the boundary. There were a couple of goals that Port scored in this game where I was just, you can't even be mad about them. There were a couple. I'm not even mad. That's amazing. And maybe that's the reason I'm less frustrated with this game than a lot of Cats fans was. It wasn't a game that, that really you felt like was right in not, Geelong's grasp or. I did not think from the start this was a particularly winnable game. You know, after the first quarter and into halftime, I thought it was. And then like if we had gotten beat more like we did in the second quarter, I would have said, all right. It was just frustrating that the third quarter and fourth, there was no response, especially they really mailed it in the fourth. And I think people have noticed Sam DeConing doing that a few times, which is frustrating because he has what it takes to be a top defender. When you have both him and Stewart operating, I mean, that's that's what won you a flag. That said, I still think he played a lot better than when he was wearing that mask. Just he needs to play more like he did in the first half. And I think he needs to understand maybe he doesn't realize how good he is. But he needs to get a sense of he's got to pull his weight in order for this to be a finals team, to be a flag contender. I don't think they're either of those this year. I'll say that. I think despite the tough schedule, I think finals are still well within reach. I think playing beyond a semifinal is extremely unlikely at this point. If this team makes a prelim, I would consider it a massive success with everything thrown at them between scheduling and the fact that they haven't been particularly good on the road. If if this team makes a prelim, hell of a year. You're more optimistic about this team than I am. Like, I've seen the pieces come together. It's just, it's been a couple pieces each week instead of all of them. Like, a few weeks ago, it was really critical of Zach Toohey, and now he's playing great. He was not the problem in this game. He finished up with a behind 24 disposals, 547 meters gain, and just played with super high energy, and I really liked his performance. And it's like, if you can get the better version of Jack Henry to show up, this is a different game. It might not be a game they would they still win, but it's a much closer contest. It's a game they could win at home. Okay, I'll take that. Um, you're you're right on about Marshall and Finlayson having an easier time, regardless of matchup. Marshall kicking three two off fifteen disposals and seven marks. Finlayson four goals straight off ten disposals and seven marks. I'm so happy that Finlayson's performing so well with everything that's been going on personally with him and thrilled also that his wife's prognosis is a bit better. It's like nice I, to get beaten by a guy and have the camera showing his family constantly and not being agitated. It's like, why are they all over him? It's like, now nah, he deserves this and his family deserves all the positive recognition they can get. Another great family moment in the interviews after this game where uh, second cousins got interviewed together. We mentioned one of them already, but uh, how are we not talked at all? 
about Port Debutante, Quinton Narkle. Two crucial goals, getting to the right spot in contests, and looking right at home despite having come into the team just a couple weeks ago. He's elevated some of his pressure game as well, more active in tackling. It was really frustrating, though, for his first goal to come when we should have been able to alleviate pressure. It was late in the second quarter, part of a key sequence. Uh, lead was 19, and then DeConing couldn't mark a short Finlayson shot. Had a couple chances to get out, couldn't do it, and eventually Narkel scored, and then Finlayson marked in a pack, and they score. That made it two goals in about 45 seconds and cut the lead to seven going into the half, and that just, that was where the game had really changed. I still don't think, like, without that play, they win this game. I think it sure would have helped, but I don't think it changes the outcome ultimately. Although, you wonder, you know, say you go into halftime up 13 and 13 or even 18. Say you go into half up 13 instead of 7. It makes you wonder, but like, it also has me thinking, like, yeah, there's little things here that can be changed that would fix a lot. And I think. I still think this is so much better than the team we saw early in the season. It's just, it needs to come together. They're running out of time for that. They're going to have to defend ground at home, and they're going to have to win at least one tough road game, if not more. You have to go out and either win at Sydney or somehow at Brisbane. Like, I mean, the Lions are due for a stinker at home. I, I mean, do we see them going 11-0 and at home. That's one of the reasons I'm, like, happy the Lions haven't lost at home yet is, like, aren't they bound to lose at home eventually? Finals. Straight sets. It would be really funny if they went 11-0 and at home and then lo- lost a final at home, which I could totally see happening. I can see him going 11-0 and at home and then losing two finals. But yeah, gonna have to beat someone, like, out of those two or beat Collingwood at the G, which, these are tall tasks, but the path is still there. You gotta piece things together, though. It's just, there have been pieces there, and other than maybe the Sydney game, I guess, there just haven't been a lot of times where they've all been there. But it's like, you could take pieces out of this game, and pieces out of various other losses, and like, there are the makings of a really good team there. We went through some of the stats during our other conversation about this game, but I want to mention a few other big performances. Ollie winds up behind from 28 disposals and 15 contested possessions, helping with some of those balls in the middle. Connor Rosie with a behind from 25 and 530 meters. Zach Butters a goal from 23 at eight clearances. Those were the most in the game. Dylan Williams continuing that, that halfback support. 19 disposals at 614 meters gained. In a year where Kane Farrell hasn't been as notable and had been injured a bit, Williams has helped make up for that along with Houston continuing to elevate his performance. I really liked Williams. I think he's just added like a solid layer of... I'm, I can't think of the right word to describe it, but things just feel a lot more secure with him involved, even if he doesn't do anything in particular that's that special. Alir Alir, 16 disposals, 12 marks, and 8 intercepts. One of his better games of the season as well. Marks inside 50 in this one were 17 to 8. Really, this game opened up once Port were able to stick more marks in general, and that reflected in some of the final tallies, including inside 50. Efficiency inside 50. Cats at 46.5, not terrible, but you can't allow 57.6, especially when you're giving up so many more inside 50s. And that's just something that last year didn't happen. Uh, Zach Guthrie had one of his best games. I know on the Hoop Show, he made the roll of honor for the week. 26 disposals, 8 intercepts, 612 meters. 
His instincts have been really solid, and he just he had a nice game overall. Uh, Max Holmes, I wish he could be out on the wing, but you need him in the middle just because there isn't a lot else there right now. 24 disposals and 15 contested possessions. Isaac Smith, a goal, 20 disposals and 9 marks. And Mark O'Connor playing his 100th game, a goal off 18 disposals and 8 marks. I wonder if he's going to be tagging in the coming weeks with the likes of Petraka and though he hasn't been confirmed in yet, Oliver, and, you know, a couple of weeks after that, Lockie Neal. I think, I just feel like as well as O'Connor has played, they could maximize his impact more. And I'm not sure what it is that could be changed, but I, I feel like there's something there where he could really affect the game in a much more profound role. I think O'Connor's had a better season just as an all-around player outside that tagging role, but I do agree with you. And I believe he is the sixth Irish-born AFL player to reach 100 games? Maybe he's the key to really unlocking the defense. Brisbane 13-19-97, defeating Sydney 12-9-81. I think the score for this one, first off, Brisbane's inaccuracy is a little misleading because they kicked 3-6 in the final quarter where it seemed like a lot of times they knew, like, all right, we're one goal away from really putting this to bed, and they kind of rushed to try to get that goal instead of set up a better shot. It wasn't like they struggled with accuracy all night. I mean, they were 10-13 entering the fourth quarter, which isn't great, but isn't terrible. Um, I didn't think Sydney played that poorly. Just overmatched considering who they're still missing, being still low on tall defenders, and still missing Callum Mills. But I guess if you're trying to come up with the story out of this game, it's that the young Lions looked really nice. Jasper Fletcher had a strong debut. Even after he started cramping up near the end, there was a they had a shot of his mom being really concerned before they realized, wait a minute, it, it's a cramp. And yeah, the Lions being younger this week was definitely a headline going in because, you know, Dane Zorko wasn't named because of his calf tightness. And so Kyle Lowen made his season debut, really enjoyed the pressure that he helped bring. And then Jack Gunston and Daniel Rich stood themselves down from selection because they were dissatisfied with their own form. And they're kind of doing like, a baseball extended spring training move, kind of like Alec Manoa, except they're doing it by choice instead of the Blue Jays telling you, no, this is awful. Go away. Go to Florida. I mean, going to Florida from Ontario isn't quite a punishment. No, although Florida in June. Let's see. Hang on. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to look up the weather right now. Yeah, we're the we're the Blue Jays. Yeah, let's see. It's oh, like, actually hot and thunderstorms. I'll take that back. Whereas Toronto... Actually, yeah, this is actually a pretty decent time of year to be in Toronto weather-wise. So, like, at other times of year, if this is, like, April or September, or later than September, it's like, hell yeah, I'd rather be in Florida, but... Yeah, nasty weather. Anyway, the younger Lions looked really good, and I thought Kadeen Coleman looked excellent, and I don't get why he had been moved into that sub role in prior weeks. I really liked how he intercepted, how he started quick counterattacks, just a really solid game that goes well beyond the behind 20 disposals and nine intercepts he posted. Even if some of the things he does to start scores doesn't show up on the stat sheet, he is essential in that area of the game. Just moving the ball out, out of the back, the length of his kicks as well. And, you know, Connor McKenna is able to support in some of that role as well. But I think Coleman has clearly taken over in that area of the Lions game from Daniel Rich at this point. And beyond this year or next, I don't expect Rich to be around anyway. Again, it wasn't just that Coleman moved the ball out of the back. It was that he did stuff kind of from a halfback position. 
interfering with Sydney ball movement. I saw him doing more of that than I would have expected Daniel Rich to do. And yeah, it was eight score involvements for Coleman. So that does partially speak for itself. That's a lot from a back six player. Also, his numbers didn't jump off the page. I thought he took the best mark of the round. More on that later, hint, hint. But I thought Cam Rayner was fucking fantastic in this game. I think he only had like 14 disposals or something, but he played all over the ground and played like a number one pick, just impacting the game everywhere. By the way, his 100th game. I thought he was brilliant. We've seen him play well going for the back early, early of the year. Then he went forward and kicked four goals. He is a really strong all-around player. And with some of the depth issues that the Lions had in this game, also with, with some questions in defensive times, he managed to step up wherever he was playing. Speaking of uh, defensive issues, so Jack Payne tweaked his ankle early on in this one in a contest with, I believe it was with Jack Bowler, the debutante. And then Ryan Lester, who had played really poorly against the Crows filling in for Payne, played a great game. Yeah, his best just stay-at-home defensive game that I've seen from him this year. He's played each of the past few, and I think it maybe took a bit for him to get into form, or maybe took a poor game for him to wake up. But yeah, well done, Ryan Lester. I I thought he was awesome. This was another game, I guess, kind of similar to... Geelong's position where it's like I wasn't expecting Sydney to win in fact I had guessed this was off the air it was like a few hours before the game but I had said to Benjamin it was like Brisbane's gonna win I don't know 121 to 57 and the Swans hung in there largely I think again we're seeing just having Lewis Melican in there freeze up Nick Blakey for so much more and Angus Sheldrick looked really nice scored his first two goals they needed different looks forward with various players having been out and even with Joel Marty being back in now Jack Bowler making his debut though he was subbed off Sam Wicks being in there more on him in a bit Sheldrick has presented himself for the ball more and more these past few weeks and finally got the necessary looks to, to hit a couple goals I have a hypothesis about Sheldrick I think he was behind on his podcasts during the bye he caught up and he listened to our season preview and heard me pick him as a sleeper pick. And it inspired him and lit a fire under him. And he's played way better because of me. So you're welcome. Well, then I could also take credit for Ryan Lester's good game. Sure, go for it. As Al Gore said, celebrating Lisa Simpson buying his book, I will. The Swans actually started off this game really well. They led 26 to 14 at quarter time. Luke Parker was their most active and their best from the beginning. He ended up kicking 1-1 from 24 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 11 tackles, and 10 clearances. Is that a quadruple double? I guess. Uh, eh, I don't think contested possessions necessarily. Having both contested possessions and... Yeah, I don't think disposals actually would count on that front, but still impressive. And then James Robottom with a goal from 23, 15 contested possessions, and... 11 tackles as well. You knew that those two would need to be able to restrict Brisbane's stoppages and manage to contain the ball themselves. And they did that early on. Lions managed to find ways to fight through that. And it was the younger players kind of hitting back at City with their own pressure that helped turn that around. Kai Loman, Will Ashcroft, and Zach Bailey were all really big parts of that. And it's difficult to think, wow, Loman's going to be fighting for his spot again next week and might not even be in. If Zorko's back healthy. 
So I want to go back for a second and mention another Parker thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Other than like one game this year, I've been able to count on at least one of either Parker or Chad Warner going off. So having both of them in fantasy has been really nice. Robot has been a nice pickup for me as of late as well. I mean, he's just like almost every week he's going to get you seven plus tackles. This time he had 11. Oh, other thing. Performer who got a lot of credit, even though I only noticed him once all game because he gave up like one mark all night. Harry Cunningham shut Charlie Cameron down. Cameron missed a shot with two minutes left. But other than that, Cunningham was all over him. Cameron goalless for just the third time this year. The others being round one against Port and round nine against Essendon. Well, there's something in common with all three of the games in which he's been goalless. Actually, wait, nah. Never mind. Well, they're two and one when he's goalless, so something about that, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's a no correlation thing. I think so as well. By the way, that no correlation uh, graphic is one of my favorites on Twitter. It's one of my favorites to post on Twitter. Very frequently useful. Yeah. I mentioned we were going to talk a bit more about Sam Wicks. He was suspended two games for a late high hit on my sleeper pick, Ryan Lester. It was a very obvious and dumb penalty. And the fact that that's two and that James Sicily is three is making a lot of fans blood boil, including my own. Is uh, the Sicily's at the wait, tribunal as we record this, by the way. The tribunal is still deliberating. The point is, I'm wondering, is the MRO scale too restricting? And, and is intent value too little? Sisley's was, was something that occurred during the course of play, and it was made awkward by the other players around him. Wicks could have easily stopped what he was doing. All right. Uh, we mentioned how Parker and Warner, you know, you can always count on someone out of them stepping up. You can also always count on Lockie Neal and Josh Dunkley. Neal, 29 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 10 score involvement, 7 tackles. Dunkley, 28 disposals, 8 tackles, 11 score involvements. Zach Bailey got involved more and more as this game went on. You really started to see him show off the speed. His 695 meters, I don't have the breakdown, but I think he ran for a pretty significant chunk of those. He kicked 2-3. He was one of those guys who was kind of forcing shots to try to put the game away. He had 26 disposals and 11 score involvements. Question, when people say, hey, baby, after his goals, do they say, hey, Zach Bailey? Because... I don't exactly hear it, but I wouldn't be shocked. It's like how the, the New York Islanders fans do with Josh Bailey. Yeah. I think that song's so annoying, by the way. Honestly, I think it's more annoying to hear during a Lions home game than let it go. Yes, can't agree. Will Ashcroft, behind 23 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 9 clearances. Oscar McInerney really had his way with Tom Hickey. I think one of the things that the Swans can't really blame on injuries is how much their Ruckman have struggled this year because they've, other than that game where they had to rely on McAndrew, they've at least had one, you know, typical AFL level Ruckman and uh, McInerney finished with a goal, 46 hitouts, 18 disposals, 13 contested possessions and eight clearances. I know he's not, you know, on that Tim English, Max gone level, but McInerney's a solid part of that next tier and as far as the big boys go, he's one of the more skilled with his feet. Connor McKenna did some of the duties taking the ball out of the back. I know you talk about him a lot. Uh, he had a goal off 18 disposals. He gained 566 meters. Efficiency inside 50 aligns at 53% disposal efficiency. The Swans at 39.3. A bit restricted by some of the stronger defensive play. 
but also just not clean enough. Having said that, still like the games from Sheldrick, obviously, two goals straight from 19 disposals. Errol Golden kicking 2-1 from 27 and 484 meters gained. Looking further back, Jake Lloyd had 27 disposals. And Nick Blakey, 24, 11 intercepts and gaining 478 meters. He had a couple down games. I think one of them came right after signing that contract extension. But by and large, he's been one of the better swans this year. This wasn't the game, though, that I expected them to win. I didn't expect the Lions to win this game exactly as they did, but thrilled with how much their younger players got involved. Just looking at some of the pressure that they put on. Loman with 19 pressure acts. Ashcroft with 20 and five score launches which led all covers in this one. Just his ability to take the ball through stoppages once winning it with the speed he has, has helped open up a lot for the Lions this year. Getting into Saturday, Greater Western Sydney, 16-10-106, defeating Fremantle, 5-6-36. GWS came in with another great banner for this one, the big, big sound, the old heave-ho, our song is iconic, yours needs to go. <laughs> Excellent work. I wish I had seen that live. Yeah, I don't I'm not sure if they showed it on the, the pregame coverage because it was the side that was facing the stance. But I saw a photo of it on Twitter and I continue to be impressed by the Giants banner game. And unlike last year where they lost their meeting with the Dockers after that excellent banner about closing the borders, they controlled this one from the beginning. Four goals each quarter and never trailing. Yeah, um, really disappointed in Frio's performance. Obviously, missing a couple of pretty key pieces between James H., Michael Frederick, Sean Darcy, but they just looked uninterested in this game largely. I think they looked flustered and confused as to how to move the ball effectively without some of those pieces. It relied on them needing to do more on the inside, and the Giants were able to meet them in those inside contests so often. They were also winning the center clearances. They were plus 10 in that department, 16 to 6. And so in this game, you saw between the key injuries and the Giants' strengths, a lot of where Fremantle have succeeded this season, they weren't able to access in this game. I was waiting for Nathan O'Driscoll to maybe get more involved along with faster passages along the wing, could have used a bit of his size there as well, could have thrown someone else out there who was struggling to get touches. I don't know, maybe, I mean, Sam Sturt wasn't super actively involved in this game, but he's more of a forward. I don't know, they needed players who were capable on the wings to help open the games up, and you had one of O'Driscoll. Once Neil Erasmus came on, he could have been better used in that way, but this matchup didn't really favor them. I thought this was going to be a really fun, high-flying back-and-forth game, and it did not live up to either of our expectations. I mean, GWS played at the pace I was anticipating, but Frio just didn't have it. And my concern, like every team has a stinker. It's not often though that serious contenders get beaten to this degree, especially by a likely non-finalist. Like as many positives as I've said about GWS, and now they're up to 11th, they're six and eight. They're only four points out right now. The fact is a premiership contender or serious team probably doesn't lose to them by this much. You can lose to them. They've beaten good teams. They've nearly beaten other solid teams. But you gotta at least show some level of a pulse, and they just never did in this game. I mean, 36 points for the whole game against a team that isn't exactly known for airtight defense. I mean, yes, Sam Taylor was back in this game. Thrilled for that. He played John Amos well. 
because that's nice and all, but that and that's allowed for more natural matchups for the rest of their defense. But that that doesn't excuse the effort they put together as a whole. I want to talk about one GWS player in particular. Is it Jake Riccardi? No, actually, I wanted to talk about Callum Brown. Duh. I now, know, knowing you will be Brown, I wanted to mention Riccardi because I'd been on him for a while. Remember, he ha- he was taken out of the lineup when Aaron Capman came in for the gather round. And clearly that month-long spell in the reserves did him well because he has been much more involved ever since. Oh, he's been really sharp. I thought he was kind of like on the fringe altogether, and now he's put himself into a spot where he's going to have a stable lineup position. Yeah, since he came back, goalless of the loss to St. Kilda, but 11 goals in the past four games, taking 5-2 in this one from just 15 disposals. And by the way, this is a guy who I said... Like when the Cats played against them, was like, are you kidding me? Is this the guy who's kicking the dagger against you? And now you don't feel as bad about that anymore, do you? No, I I, I don't. But as for Callum Brown, he's a forward. Yeah, I, I'm still adamant that he should be playing forward. You're going to hear that from me a lot. But I will say, considering what a skilled and accurate kick he is, there is room for him to be involved defensively. I think it's as the guy who kind of like, if you want to launch a big counterattack, have him as at the halfback position to kind of launch the breakout with a long kick into the forward half. Kind of seems like very Dan Houston or Kane Farrell-like, thinking about Port still. I mean, he's I mean he's got a hell of a leg. We've seen the long goals that he's been able to kick. I think he had one in the previous couple games that was from 57 out and kicked 2-2 in this one. Lining up as a defender, yeah, he kicked 2-2 with 16 disposals and 8 marks. He did miss one set shot out on the full, but I really liked his performance overall. Uh, Josh Kelly, by the way, probably the guy to get the three votes here. Uh, Three goals straight, 33 disposals, nine score involvements, eight clearances, 538 meters gained. His first game back from a hamstring injury that he suffered, I think in the late goings of that round 10 game against St. Kilda. Did not expect him to be kicking three goals. That's the second highest disposal total for him for the season that he had more touches than Steven Canelio and Tom Green really impressed me in this one Green is that ultimate in the guts player that 31 disposes himself in 19 contested possessions and so with that it's freed up Kelly to be a bit more on the outside and get some of those effective kicks and clearances away I also like Daniel Lloyd especially with Jesse Hogan out he offers a lot physically that's just badly needed I think no matter what matchup you put him in, you need to have a couple of guys with that sort of muscle. I was expecting more of that out of Aaron Cadman, but yeah, just three touches. Lloyd kicked 1-1 off 14. Steven Canelio, two behinds, 31 disposals, 517 meters. Finn Callahan, who I think the entire AFL world is really growing to appreciate, and also he's only 20. I think he's already basically locked in a 22 under 22 spot. 27 disposals, 655 meters. Lockie Ash, 23 disposals. Lockie Whitfield, cop to suspension. Dangerous tackle on Jordan Clark. He had a goal off 22 disposals. And Toby Green, 4-1 off 16 disposals. Toby Green and Jake Riccardi combined to outscore Frio 57-36. No individual outscored the Dockers, but in their reserves game, Sebit Kuek equaled them. By kicking six goals straight, I would not be shocked to see him in for Sam Sturt next week. And Kuek could handle some more of the rough tasks as well, which could help free up Luke Jackson if Darcy remains out. 
So even more of a reason to bring in Sebek. Yeah, I would, even if he's not that good of a Ruckman, just having a, having a different body there frees up Jackson. And that can be good enough. That's what you said going into this game, and I agree with you still. I think this game made it obvious. As long as it's someone better than John Segler, I am all for bringing in just about anybody so that you can free up Jackson and let him operate more, as long as it's someone with a pulse, basically. Whether it's Quack or Liam Reedy getting their debuts, somebody, please. And I think Longmuir will not hesitate to drop the axe. GWS plus 24 on inside 50s, 68 to 44, and plus 14 on Mark's inside 50, 21 to 7. One of the worst actual defensive 50 games for Fremantle's back lines this year. We know that they're willing to move the ball and kick it around a lot, but not as strong of the stay-at-home job. Jordan Clark did have 22 disposals, 8 marks, and 523 meters game, but that's kind of what we expect and kind of is in line with the points that I just made. Caleb Sarong kicked 1-1 from 32 disposals and 17 contested possessions. Seeing him and Tom Green battle on stoppages was fun throughout this one. Ender Brayshaw behind from 29 disposals. Luke Jackson, 25 hitouts, 7 disposals, and 9 intercepts led the game, but having to be that first-rate ruck has really restricted him in this one. Hats off to Kieran Briggs for another strong performance as well. Is he the giant that's impressed you the most this year? Now, there are so many. It's tough because you've got him, you've got Callahan. I mean, Callum Brown, I kind of knew he could do this. I like Ash. I've liked Whitfield. Briggs has only been in these past five games, but looks like he should be holding now that spot. Now, uh, 28 hit out, six tackles, and five clearances on his own in this one. I mean, I've also liked Callum Ward. There are so many guys that on this team, like, who have I not been impressed with? I mean, I guess to an extent, Matt Flynn. Uh, I mean, Brake solves that problem. Yeah, exactly. There is a real direction here for the Giants, and I'm thrilled to be able to be talking about one of the teams at the bottom of the league this way. I am genuinely excited to tune into Giants games, to Hawthorne games for a similar reason. The Giants are at the point where if they really struggled for the rest of the year and took a step back next year, I would still be pretty happy with their outlook big picture. They, like, already checked off every requirement I had for them for this year and then some. Oh, by the way, uh, the Giants host Hawthorne in round 17. That's the middle Saturday game. That one should be fun, especially considering the first game they played this year in the... Gather round. Oh, speaking of the... Gather round. Peter Malinowskis is really pushing to have a game in the Barossa Valley, which is, oh yeah, that's their, that's their wine country, which is 75 kilometers or 46 miles, 47 miles north of Adelaide, which I think would be really fascinating. I'm, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm all for it. The league wanted to announce the dates for next year's Gather round. early because of when it's going to fit with school holidays in a lot of states. Yeah, I mean, in the, so that'll, we knew this would bring people in. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, though, the reason that it's what it is, it's that it's in the Easter holiday season. So, yeah, that's going to be from April 4th through 7th next year. And yeah, I do expect a game in Barasa. Hopefully, they still have the contests at Norwood. I mean, they're treating this quite differently from the NRL Magic Round in the sense that, you know, they're willing to spread it out throughout the area, but they're still there will still be so much travel to South Australia, and it worked wonders this year. I'm looking forward to the future of the Gather Round. And on that note, we're going to step aside for a moment to see if we can pay any bills, and uh, we'll be back in less than a minute. 
With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find Grian Harambe on Instagram at CatNameGrian. You can also find him sitting on the bed next to me. You can find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01. I'm mostly just looking at Grian right now and how peaceful he is. It's amazing just how quickly he can switch from running around like a Dougal head to being super affectionate and then sleeping. I think that's just cats in general, though. And I'm going to be spending a lot more time with him again soon because you'll be away again. Yeah, I'm going to be on the road for a while. We're going to have a lot of road shows. And yeah, you'll be experiencing a lot of Eastern Time Zone footy again. You'll be in New York soon. Yes, we'll have some Eastern Time Zone footy. We'll have some Central Time Zone footy. Chance we'll meet up with Donnie? Possible. That'll be great. What are you on with uh for Donnie's disposal? I was on there for the round 11 recap. I believe it's round 18. All right, yeah. Well, we'll mention that again as it comes closer. In the meantime, Saturday night, we had Richmond 13-12-90 defeating St. Kilda 11-4-70. This game started off super quickly in an 11-goal first quarter, and then the rain came in. It changed everything, and St. Kilda did not look ready for the rain at all. Meanwhile, it played to the advantage of a number of Richmond players, including one Dustin Martin, who had one of his most effective games of the season if not his best. I think really the rain just played to the advantage of whichever team had gotten out to a lead by that point, and that just so happened to be Richmond. This was a much more entertaining game than I expected. I thought this game was kind of going to be a grind, kind of a slog, and instead it was 40-30 to 30 after a quarter, 67-50 to 50 at halftime. Unfortunately for the Saints, they didn't quite control the tempo in this one. They didn't really take the air out of the ball like they usually do. And they're not a team that's really equipped to play from behind. No, I mean, the first 15 minutes or so, they controlled it, kicking the first four goals. They went out to a 24-1 to lead within just over eight minutes of clock time, time off. But Richmond's pressure increased from there, and they used that to control the game pretty definitively all the way through, I'd say, around the middle of the third quarter where things started to even up again. They're better at the scrappy play and the chaos ball than St. Kilda are. And, and that's why I say that their play style fit the conditions more, even though, yes, it did help that they were already playing from in front. It was Dougal Howard's worst game of the year. He ended up getting subbed off. He did not understand how to adapt to the wet weather. And if the Saints are going to do their thing, they need him really as the number two guy to Callum Wilkie. And their defense just didn't quite have it this game, whether it was him or... You know, I barely noticed Jimmy Webster, Liam Stalker with little positive impact. The only time I really noted him as we were taking notes for this game was that he wasn't able to get a clean disposal away because he got pressured by Dusty leading up to the very last goal. Josh Battle was very quiet. Yeah, I would expect really hadn't been impressed by Howard that much this year. Battle's been the guy that I would say has been the number two behind Wilkie and he was restricted in this one, you expected that you know, it would be more of a ground-based game once the rain settled in and the Saints' defense aren't equipped for that as well. 
By the way, Richmond's midfield did a really nice job on Mason Wood. He did not have a profound impact on this game like he often does. Midfield played well as a whole. Dusty with his first 30-plus disposal game in 33 games played since round 5 of 2021, coincidentally also against St. Kilda. And Trent Cotchin going back into the midfield has really paid off and mostly been playing at half forward, if not even further forward for the first 10 rounds, has looked to be in a much more natural spot since Andrew McWalter took the reins. And I mean, yeah, this was kind of his night, 300th game and played up to it. He kicked 2-1 from 29 disposals, 15 contested possessions and 491 meters. Martin, 0-3, but all tough kicks and 35 disposals, 514 meters gained. So those who helped turn back the clock. It's cool to have Dustin Martin controlling the game in a way that both people who know the sport really well and people who don't can see at once like, oh yeah, this guy's this guy's a superstar. Even still. And hopefully he's able to keep up with this because honestly, I think it's better for the game when he's on. Tim Taranto, once again, just phenomenal. Tim 151 Taranto. A goal of behind 38 disposals and an octopus. Yeah, he sealed the game, laid cutting through a stoppage and kicking check side. I just did not see him. Coming off the boot, I think, Tim, why the hell are you kicking? Okay, great shot, Tim. It's like that that Steve Kerr interview after that one play has to have been right near the start of his tenure coaching the Warriors when Stephen Curry went through his legs, turned backwards, went back outside the arc, then drained a three against the Clippers. It was like, there's 14 seconds left. Why the, Why are you doing that? Great shot, Steph. Yeah, if Toronto, Martin, and Kotchin are firing on all cylinders, Richmond are very hard to beat. I noticed a couple of things about this game. First off, the weather didn't really keep people away. They had more than 62,000. Best crowd of the round. Would you say that's mostly Richmond fans showing up for the milestone? Probably at least a significant part of it. I don't know if it's all of it, but it definitely helped. Also, teams just don't seem to lose these games very often when it's, you know, your star hitting a big milestone. You know, not 150 or 200, but when, maybe 200. But when a guy's playing in like 250 or 300, unless you're just overmatched, like unfortunately was the case for, say, Todd Goldstein's 300, you're usually going to win these games. Yeah, so uh, whoever plays Collingwood in Pendlebury's 400th, you might want to write that off right away. You just, just rest everyone. You know you're not going to win. We've been talking about these midfield names for Richmond, but I honestly hope Nick Flostone gets into the votes for this one. If there was one player that defined this game for me outside of the midfield, it was Flostone. He controlled the game from the defensive 50 until Ryan Burns started playing on him in the later part of the third quarter, and he still got some meaningful touches after that. Coaches' votes for this game, Vlastone got four of them. Okay, reasonable. Uh, the coaches' votes for this game, we were so close to perfection. Toronto 10, Cochin 8, Martin 6, Vlastone 4, Bolton and Sinclair each with one. Ah, damn you, Ross Lyon. Or Andrew McWalter. I mean, either one of them could have fixed that. Flostone with a goal from 23 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 9 marks. That was his first goal of the season. Quite unexpected. I dug it, though, with how well he'd been playing. Dion Prestia, an effective 25 disposals. Jaded Short, two goals for 23 at 713 meters. He's kicked five goals these past two weeks, and I am all here for it. Noah Balta with 17 disposals and 10 intercepts. And um, Ben Miller with two goals, the last goal of the first and second quarters and nearly kicking the last of the third as well was just touched on the line. Easily his best game of the year. 
And with Samson Ryan hurt being subbed out with an ankle injury, maybe Miller's spot is a bit steadier now? It's a tough situation with the two of them and Yvonne Soldo all fighting for a spot. I think either Miller or Soldo will look to move on within the next year or two. There has been a habit of guys that get criticized on this show turning up in the following weeks. Uh, Trent Rivers was a great example of it. I hadn't been really complimentary of Miller. You know, capable as a tall defender, but his accuracy toward goal had not been good. And then he does this. That really tells you how bad Ed Kernow's been if we've ripped on him that many times and he still hasn't been able to fix it. And we're on the Blues in a sec, but uh, at least he didn't play in that one. Richmond, 51.7% inside 50 efficiency to the Saints, 37.7. Again, when teams went inside 50, corresponding with weather, had something to do with that, but not all of it. Uh, Tobin and Curvis largely outplayed Rowan Marshall one-on-one. Beat him by uh, hitouts 55 to 35, center clearances 17 to 8. Uh, turnovers, yeah, the weather had a lot to do with this. 102 to 97, the Saints with five more turnovers. But that's just, that's a lot of turnovers both ways. I was impressed, like I said, with the crowd between the conditions and that it's not like a huge must-see matchup and that, you know, a lot of people obviously retreated to cover when it rained because it came down pretty good, but it, it never like, had a negative impact on the atmosphere, which is really impressive. Because I remember, like, for example, in the... When it poured during the Port Adelaide game, it had a noticeable effect on the atmosphere. Top performers for the Saints, Brad Croucher behind, 33 disposals, 17 contested possessions. Bradley Hill, 31 disposals, 493 meters. Jack Sinclair, 31 disposals, 7 clearances, 543 meters. Seb Ross, the superior of the two Rosses in this game, with 25 disposals and 521 meters. Not that Jack played particularly poorly, I'll say. He did have an intercept mark in the midfield that got Koch in his first goal late in the first quarter. So credit to Jack there. The two Rosses are not related, right? Don't believe so. Yeah, um, Seb Ross is Joe Watson's cousin. Oh yeah, and people made a point of Joe having to commentate the 300th game of one of the guys that ended up winning the Brownlow medal because he was injected with thymosin. Callum Wilkie was all right. 17 disposals, 501 meters, and Josh Battle, a goal, 15 disposals, and 10 intercepts. Still, though, I don't, I didn't really notice him consistently winning matchups. 10 intercepts is good, but... I noticed him scoring because I think it got a pretty good reaction from the team. Yeah, it did. You know, any defender goal usually usually gets one. Yeah, I mean, the reaction to Vlostov's goal was just as big as Kochin's first goal, really, which tells you something there. I also thought in this game, just the umpiring seemed to lean toward the Saints all night with some controversial decisions, and that Richmond were able to fight through that and still control this game speaks even more to just how well they played as a team in this one. Now, the Tigers haven't had their bye yet, but they're two points out of a final spot. At worst, they come out of the bye six points out, and I think it will be hard to count them out at this point. But they're in ninth again. If they do finish in ninth, it would be really funny, but I also wouldn't fault them. Fun fact I found through Instagram, they have the third most weeks in ninth all time behind the Saints and Demons. But out of the bye, at the Gabba, host the Swans, then you're at the Eagles and you host Hawthorne, but then D's, at Dogs, Saints rematch, host North and close it out at Port Adelaide. This is going to be spicy. Is that North game at Marvel or at... At the B. B. Okay, so they'll actually win it. 
uh, Richmond do not have any more home games at Marvel. Their remaining four home games are all at the G. We'll be talking about them a lot one way or another. And not, I mean, obviously, you know, we talk about every game, but they'll be in some topical games throughout the rest of the season with those high-profile matchups. And this is a team that we both would have expected to write off a while ago, yeah? I'd expected to have written them off earlier than the Sydney Swans. I'm still not entirely ready to write the Swans off, although, man, they're in a tough spot points-wise. They're still only two games out, and they've got a bunch of tough games remaining, which on one hand doesn't help them, but on the other, it's like they have a direct path back in. You know, I thought the Suns had a direct path into the mix, and then they gave up nine goals in the second quarter to Carlton. Blues, 18-12. 120, defeating the Suns, 8-13-61. The Suns making a mare of their only trip to the G this year. This is definitely the team I'm most disappointed with this round. Like, I'm disappointed with Frio, but I think I'm way more disappointed in the Suns. You're facing a team that's hurting. You're coming in with a lot of momentum. You score the first two goals. The ball's living in the forward 50 for much of the early going. 10 of the first 13 inside 50s, and then this happens. Uh, this is this is disappointing. You know, this is the sort of game that makes you think, man, it's just the same old sons. And it, it sucks. I want them to be good. I want them to have their first finals appearance. I want Stuart Dew to be the right guy for them. It's one thing to lose. Carlton weren't going to be bad forever. But to just get blasted like they did in the second quarter... And in areas where you would expect the Suns to be able to keep up, they got blasted in center clearances. It was plus 12 for the game they called 19 to 7. They scored 8-2 from center clearance. They had as many goals as the they had as many goals from center clearance as the Suns had altogether. This was something that Took Miller alone would not have fixed. I think that's an understatement. It's like look, if they had just lost this game, you know, it was like, all right, at some point Carlton were due to play better. You would have said, all right, you would have been disappointed, but you could have lived with it. It's that they got spanked so thoroughly. That just sucks. And it makes you think this is not a finalist, even though, again, only four points out. It's, it's, it's hard to believe in them after a game like that. Not just because their percentage is now worse than GWS. It's still at a Frio, but it's worse than Carlton. It's worse than Sydney. It's, it's not on their side. And you look at their upcoming schedule. It looks a lot tougher all of a sudden. You've got you host Hawthorne, then you host Collingwood, at Port, host the Saints, GWS in Canberra, host the Lions. We both have that penciled in as a loss. Visit the Crows, visit the Swans, host the Blues, and visit North and Tasmania. I mean, we should also pencil in Port as a loss, considering they've never won at the Adelaide Oval, and that is now the longest head-to-head -head losing streak in the league all by itself, thanks to Essendon winning dream time. Between that and the trip to face the Crows, I mean, they did beat the Crows at home, but I don't think either of their trips to Adelaide are going to go especially well. Yeah, and I'm just so disappointed because, again, Carlton's game plan is pretty simple. It's not something that, that you know, you've got to really go in and dissect. You, don't, you won't see any segments, you won't see many halftime segments go, going over, you know, Something completely unexpected in the lab with the da -da 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 music going on on Fox Footy. No, they just they tightened up their quarter use and had good pace, and it was generating better shots for them. 
They were distributing the ball reasonably well. I guess that's you know a bit of a change going forward is that they were looking for a greater number of targets. Harry McKay kicked better in his 100th game, but it wasn't just him and Charlie Curnow. Patrick Cripps kicked three goals. Adam Chera and Matt Cottrell with two each. Cottrell could be a total spark plug for this team. I know you really enjoyed his game in particular. Yeah, I think he just creates a lot of energy and gets them flowing quickly. And then in defense, you know, they definitely lifted their pressure for the previous week. They were tackling over the whole ground. That's that's a simple adjustment. They had, what, I think it was 33 tackles for the whole game last week, and they more than doubled that in this one. A very nice 69 tackles to the Suns' 51. So they fixed the easy things here. It's nothing revolutionary. Nothing Michael Voss does I think will ever be super revolutionary, but it's a style that fits the Blues. Their stars played like stars. Patrick Cripps responded really well after weeks of not doing much. Adam Chera, sensational work. I mean, Chera's been their best all year. I thought he was awesome. Sam Walsh bounced back some. I thought Jack Martin added a ton of energy. That second quarter, Tom DeConing was everywhere, whether it was hitouts, taking marks on the forward 50. He was really, really good. Yeah, um, Martin hasn't been able to play a full game yet, was subbed out for Patty Dow once again. And they were talking about this in some of the commentary, how, I mean, I guess it's nice to be able to work Dow into things well then, but that does definitely restrict some of your list options with the substitutes, kind of having to plan around him for the subs. At the same time, they didn't have another forward who had been injecting that sort of energy. I'm surprised Jesse Botloff hadn't been able to do so. I want to give a lot of credit as well to a guy that I thought was just part of like the interchangeable, unremarkable shuffling of the deck chairs in Brody Kemp, who had a really nice game out of the back. 20 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 9 marks. Just a really good all-around performance from him. Again, that that second quarter was really where the game was won. It was a 57-3 to quarter. Between the first and third quarters, the Blues kicked 12 consecutive goals. That's their greatest run of consecutive goals in the past 25 years. And I find it funny that despite all that, one of the things I'm thinking about in this game is that it was bookended by really good Levi Casbold goals for the Suns. Still, let's make no mistake, this was the Blues day. I don't think they're going to be a finalist. They're six points out and have a bye coming up this week. But I gotta say, they showed the recipe to success where they can do you know, it's a different style, but the same sort of thing the Bulldogs do, where they could just overwhelm you with their star power. And this was the first time that the Suns midfield had been affected that way. So if they could do it against the Suns, even though they don't have Miller in the mix, they could do it against most clubs. Sam Doherty, 32 disposals, 9 marks, 518 meters gained. Sam Walsh, 2 behinds, 29 disposals, 11 score involvements, 506 meters Adam Notwith Chera, two goals a behind, 27 disposals, 17 contested possessions, nine score involvements, eight clearances, 459 meters gained in a par bridge and a pear tree. Did he get 10 coaches' votes, I would imagine? No, he got nine. Patrick Cripps, eight. Doherty, seven. Walsh, four. Kemp and DeConing, one each. Uh, Cripps, in addition to those three goals that we mentioned, 27 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 11 score involvements, seven clearances. Matthew Kennedy, a goal, 27 disposals, 9 clearances, and 8 score involvements. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Kennedy is a midfielder. Why did it, again, take so long for Voss and company to realize this? He's been played all over the ground this year, and he's where he belongs. He was where he belongs in this game, in the middle. It's not I mean, nothing about Carlton's gameplay. It is rocket science. I mean, I get 
that you have a lot of good midfielders and you've needed to figure out like where can we spread out guys so that we're playing our best, your best 18 or 22. But Kennedy's part of that in the middle. But Kennedy and Walsh are are part of that in the middle. Or, uh, but Kennedy's part of that in the middle, maybe both Kennedy and Walsh's followers, where I, I know Kennedy was named in this game. That's accurate. Like, I guess that they've had to try to slide some pieces around to figure stuff out at positions that aren't strengths, but Kennedy's one that shouldn't be moved around again. It was worth experimenting with. The results should be telling. Nick Newman, a behind 19 disposals and eight marks, and Matthew Cottrell, who I really liked, had those two goals, 18 disposals, eight score involvements. I think the ease with which Carlton were able to score can be illustrated with the 63.6 to 41.2 advantage and inside 50 efficiency. Here's a surprising wrinkle. The Blues did not get a bunch of Mark Pitton at hitouts to advantage. Jared Witts beat him on hitouts 49 to 32. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, technically hitouts are a team stat, but I mean, Witts had obviously the bulk of those four Gold Coast. And I think Tony may have actually had more hitouts than Pitton and this one, but that the Blues were able to generate so much through the middle despite not getting the hitouts to advantage is another testament to how strongly that middle group and the followers played. Even with Pitton at and DeConing not getting many hitouts to advantage. They won center clearances 19 to 7. Also plus 65 in uncontested possessions, 232 to 167. Some of that came off of being able to move the ball at will off of those clearances. And I'm certainly not talking about Will Powell or Will Setterfield, who the Bombers are thankful that the Blues delisted. Noah Anderson with 27 disposals for the Suns. Ben Ainsworth kicked 2-1 off 22 disposals. Seems to be a better kick toward goal in live play as opposed to on set shots, which I always find interesting. Matt Rowell with 21 disposals, 15 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. Charlie Ballard did well, 17 disposals and 12 intercepts, limiting Charlie Curnow's impact, but wasn't enough to turn the tide in this game. No good individual performance would have been able to do that for Gold Coast. Round 14 ended at Marvel Stadium with North Melbourne 13-684, falling to the Bulldogs 15-15-105. You wouldn't normally make a big deal out of a 50th game, but when you kick six goals in your 50th game, I think it's warranted. Well done, Cody Waitman. Yeah, pretty sharp performance. Um, For a guy who's caught a lot of crap for flopping and the like, it was cool to see him just go out and ball without needing to do any of that stuff. Hopefully that's a wake-up call for him. He's been a guy who, you know, a lot of weeks has been great or has been really quiet. And I'd love to see him with just more, like, decent performances, but a huge game like this is certainly appreciated, especially on a day where the Bulldogs' defense took a massive blow with Liam Jones breaking his arm. Yeah, it was a fractured radius, suffered that, I think, when Paul Curtis kicked him. I'm surprised there was no kicking in danger. Free kick for that is, you know, a rarely called one, but one that was very suitable there. But yeah, that's to say that's a massive loss for the Bulldogs is an understatement when they're already missing Ed Richards with a hamstring injury. Alex Keith was not up to was not up to par against Nick Larkey in this one. Larkey kicked three and Keith did not do much to impede him. They also lost Tim O'Brien to a hamstring injury before the half and so Naughton played back on Larkey at times and was just playing in the back six in general. Luke Beveridge said that is not going to be the long-term solution but I mean it might have to be a bit for the short term. I'd rather see Naughton back there than Josh Bruce. But North were controlling the game early on. Todd Goldstein was going back for a lot of intercept marks. It was helping cut off some of the deeper looks for the Bulldogs full forwards that way. 
was a 14-point North lead at quarter time, 25-11. to 11. Yeah, the Bulldogs kicking 1-5 was, I think, the bigger thing there. And I expected them to get things right later on. And while they finished 15-15, they won the possessions that mattered and they converted off of enough of them. The most important thing is they didn't panic, just settle back in, let their talent do the talking, and handled business with a lot of their regular suspects. You know, it was that Bontempelli, Trelore, English, Dale, Liberator, Daniel, a little bit of McRae. Yeah, Bailey Dale has been the most important mover out of the back six, especially now that Daniel's more solidly placed as a half forward. One concerning part of the game for the Dogs, though, is that North scored pretty easily from stoppages, and that's not an area where you would expect the Dogs to get beaten with Tim English's solid ruck play and the midfield depth they have. Props to North for working through that. Taron Thomas's best touches were off of those stoppages, and he has looked really at home and like he belongs in their 18 since he made a season debut. I think my favorite thing is that he was getting involved defensively as well. I mean, he's got such a high motor, can really impact the game anywhere. North didn't play badly in this one. Yes, the margin looks a bit nicer with them kicking the last couple goals, but they didn't get thoroughly outplayed, aside from Waitman balling out. Their lack of a good small defender really hurts. I mean, Ben Mackay is not a great defender anymore, but... He's a sufficient enough tall defender that you could live with it. Griffin Logue did okay for himself in this one, though. Cody Waitman used him as a launch pad. Yeah, just they didn't have a small defender to match up with Waitman or with Caleb Daniel or with really anybody. And that's something that's going to have to be part of their evolution. Yeah, one of the biggest issues that I saw with the dogs that they were able to get space on leads really easily, whether it's Mackay, Logue, Goldstein going back there at times, they weren't able to keep pace. Once Bulldogs forwards got those first couple steps, it was very difficult to couch them. I think my biggest positive for North, I've been noticing Bailey Scott more and more. He had 20 disposals in game 477 meters. And, you know, I've been asking who's going to be your second forward behind Larky. And I think Tom Powell's given some of that. Yeah, Powell had a couple quick goals later on in this game and just providing a bit of a different look than than Larky isn't at times. I think he's faster on the grab than Larky is. And in a season where Paul Curtis hasn't been as prominent, even though he had maybe the assist of the year in this one. Oh, that was awesome. The kind of like between the legs move. Yeah, but with Curtis having slid back a bit, I'm glad that someone's been able to step up. My thing with North is just you compare where they are right now to last year. And even if this was with Clarkson there instead of taking whatever break he's still on. I hope that doesn't sound dismissive, by the way. I just couldn't. It's hard to define. Yeah. Whatever his situation is, like, I'm just, they look competitive. They don't look good, but they're competing each week. They're in games, at least through halftime, pretty much week in and week out. They're not getting completely pantsed. They just look like a subpar team. And considering where they were, that's kind of a step up. I, I, I know that's sad, and the Eagles are, like, the only other team I'd be complimenting in that scenario, but, like, they haven't completely fallen apart. I don't think Kingy would be as I don't think Kingy would be as complimentary as you are being right now. I still think Brett Ratton has done a tremendous job just making sure the things haven't completely combusted. I agree on that. I mean, talk about being thrown into a difficult spot. He's done pretty well with the situation that he's been given. And I'm hoping that they get the win that he deserves. He definitely deserves one. 
if not multiple. They do not look like a 2-12 and team out there. Stack time, Adam Trelore kicking 1-1 from 34 disposals, 13 score involvements, and 7 clearances. Was he your captain this week, Ethan? Uh, yes, he was. What did he get you? 226. Nice. My, my top player was actually Luke Parker. My captain was uh, Toronto. He got me 294. Yeah, I, I have a feeling he's going to be your captain just about every week right now. Well, not next. Oh, yeah, that's right. They, they have a bye. And so do the dogs, so it can't be a Libba either. So, uh, Rowan Marshall, I'm counting on you. Marcus Bonapelli had 3-2. Those goals came later on. 32 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 14 score involvements, 11 tackles, and 8 clearances. I don't know. Is I felt, despite those big stats, I felt like this game was less pronounced from him. Maybe because it was later on that he was able to accumulate some of it, that he was able to play some of his best. I mean, obviously the goal kicking was noticeable. I thought he was pretty damn good. I was focusing more on Trelaw and Libertore in this one, maybe because Libba's just so recognizable and he's another fantasy guy for me. And he's such a, like, you know when he tackles someone. There's there's no mistaking it. Yeah, his nine tackles were all pretty visible. Libba with 26 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and eight clearances as well. Tim English kicking 1-1, 32 headouts, 24 disposals, 10 marks, and 6 clearances. I hope English has a desire to come home to the Eagles one day. Caleb Daniel and Jack McCray with 22 disposals each. McCray with 10 score involvements. Daniel with a goal and 7 tackles. Bailey Dale, 28 disposals. With Daniel moving forward, he's been more visible at, he's been more visible doing some containing work in defense, starting rebounds. He'll pick he'll pick up another All-Australian. He'll pick up another All-Australian jacket during his career, I believe. Not sure if it'll be this year, but he'll get another. Cody Waitman 6-2 came off 13 disposals and 7 marks, including one of the best of the round. Dogs doubled North in inside 50s, 72-36. to 36. One of the reasons this game was closer than that, other than the you know, first quarter inefficiency, was that North were actually more efficient with their chances. 52.8% inside 52, 45.8. And that, and that's disposal efficiency, which, you know, which doesn't fully, which doesn't completely, uh, actually, my, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and that's disposal efficiency, not accuracy toward goals, was another thing that obviously helped North in this one. 13 6 is pretty damn good. That's a, a couple Bulldogs forwards were having trouble hitting the scoreboard in this one. Jamari Hagen was one of them, but I thought he played well outside of that. Clean hands all night. That was important in setting up a couple other good plays. I was hoping that he could, could have gotten that last one after the siren to find the big sticks as a reward for the other things he did. Yeah, it was unfortunately a pretty crappy kick. Yeah, Tom Hawkins had been saying some things about his uh, set shot routine kind of being stop going, wanting something more fluid from him. Oh yeah, Tom Hawkins commentating in this one. Said um a lot, but had meaningful things to say. I, I felt like he was okay. I think he can be better with more experience. It seemed like he was really like making a point of saying nice things about as many people as possible. Doesn't want to burn bridges while he's still playing, I guess. Like, you do not give, need to give teams bulletin board material. So, good job not doing that. I know some people aren't huge fans of current players going into the booth, but he did all right for himself, and I love it. I think... Dangerfield's been great at it. I think Nick Natanui's phenomenal at it. I had hoped to see him doing more of that for some national broadcasts this year on 7. Maybe he could still for some free games. 
Jack Revolt's been strong when he's done it for Fox Footy in the past, did it a couple times last year. I think it's nice to have, you know, some of the more modern players in there to get a better perspective on the current game. Because, I mean, yes, obviously, Jason Dunstall will always be good in there. And you've got some of the guys who have been doing it for so long, like Lee, like Lee Matthews, Jared Healy. That said, I love hearing, you know, some of the stuff from the current players. And I'd especially love more of them to not just be forwards because we get so many forwards in the booth. I can totally see Trent Cotchin going into commentary. I think a lot of these guys can. I think it'll be really fun. Like, we don't know most of the commentators as players. I think that's going to be fun once these some of these guys start aging out and going into the booth and we'll start being able to to compare, you know, some of the stuff they talk about as commentators to what they did on the field. On Northside, Todd Goldstein had 11 more hitouts than Tim English, 43 of them to be exact. He also had 15 disposals and kicked it behind. Harry Sheasel, 32 disposals, 610 meters. Just like his ability to hit targets downfield is really impressive. And it's funny that that comes with a guy who hasn't been a great kick for goal. Already mentioned Bailey Scott. He got those 20 disposals and 477 meters. And then Ben McKay, fresh off of playing a game and winning a game as Harry, rushed right over to Marvel. And while he didn't win, he had 19 disposals, 11 intercepts, and 11 marks. There were some references to that made during the broadcast. People know at this point, there's a reason Ben and Harry have never played against each other. What will the response be if they actually do? That they managed to clone him? That it's a deep fake? Just another psyop, huh? It's by design. And uh, those are the six games for the round, so nominee time, huh? Yeah, that was that was pretty quick. Yeah. So last week, around 13, Tyler Brockman won the mark of the week for his mark over Jack Payne. Pretty traditional, but I thought it was the most notable of the three nominees. Yeah, I thought it was definitely the best as well. Round 14 nominees. On Friday night, you had Cam Rainer taking a nice one over Aaron Francis running a reasonably long way to get into that pack for the back. Nat Fife took one over Jack Buckley on Saturday, one of the few Docker highlights, and Cody Waitman over Griffin Logue before his third goal. By the way, it's worth noting, Waitman had a couple chances to get one more later. Couldn't couldn't finish off a seventh or eighth. Ethan, whose mark was your favorite out of these three? I already said it. It's Rainer. That could be one that you see on Brownlow night. I thought that was really good. I like the others. I do agree on Rainers being the best here. We haven't had many marks where you say, wow, that could really be in the final three. I mean, one of them didn't didn't even win for the round. So hopefully Harry Himmelberg's mark before the game winning goal gets nominated on Brownlow night. I think he still I think he has two of the best marks this year, along with the one he took in round one where he just hung up there on Brody Smith. Goal of the week. Last week's winner was Nat Fife. He crumbed deep in the pocket off a forward 50 throw in and kicked across his body from 19 meters out at a 72 degree angle. This week, we've got Sam Powell Pepper tapping the ball ahead off a forward stoppage, receiving a handball from Ollie Wines and rolling a kick through from the deep left pocket with Mitch Duncan and Zach Toohey closing in on him. You got Tim Taranto crumbing off a stoppage, running through and kicking the game ceiling check side goal. And we've got Levi Casbolt grabbing the ball and running through stoppage after nominating himself for a ruck contest. He then snapped from deep in the right pocket. That was the last goal of that game. Benjamin, who is your pick for this week? My winner is Sam Powell Pepper. Maybe it's just because I like Sam Powell Pepper, but also that he was so involved in keeping the ball alive on 
this play that it was between a couple defenders, the angle involved, just that was a goal that really got me to, I guess, sit up and just, I couldn't help but applaud. It was one of the I'm not even mad that's amazing goals of the night, and it's going to be my pick as well. Now, the angle on Casbolts was really nice, but I got to go Powell Pepper here. It's one that if we didn't have such great contenders throughout the year already, I think could be a serious candidate for Brownlow night, but I don't think this even sniffs the top three because we've had four that are clearly ahead of it. I mean, what? Ashcroft, Mayacek, Cameron, Paul Curtis. At five last week, I think you could go with over it. There are going to be some actual snubs on Brownlow night for this. Good problem to have. Definitely a good problem to have. Hopefully we'll see some more quality marks to catch up to that. Your main character for round 13 was clearly Taylor Walker with 10 goals in his 250th. I thought we were going to have a really clear main character come through on Sunday, and I mean Cody Waitman kicking six and just taking haggers and beaming the whole time was great. But I also can't overlook Trent Cotchin for the performance he had in his 300th game. And also, I never mentioned, to add on to the great game he had, after the game when Dustin Martin and Jack Revolt were carrying him off, his three kids got carried off too. Dylan Grimes, Liam Baker, and Jack Graham all took one of them each on their shoulders. That was awesome. Never seen anything like that before. I think we need to leave this one to a Twitter vote. Yeah, I think Cotchin ends up winning, but you could make a case for Waitman, especially after a lot of the discourse about him, you know, flopping in, in prior weeks. I, I think we got to leave this up to Twitter followers to decide, yeah? Yeah, and if you're not following us already at American's Footy, make sure you do that to get more updates from us. Make sure you know when our new episodes are out. You can also do that by following us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. We're also on YouTube at Americans Footy, and I'll be more active in getting some shorts done and some other content soon. Personally, I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe is still sleeping next to me, though he's kind of shifted around a few times. He's on Instagram at catnamedgrian. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media, and that's pretty much it. We'll have another, you know, two-episode week for you leading up to round 15, where you'll have both the preview and the progress report. It'll be another six-game week and six teams in, in their buys. Final bye week of the year kind of come and gone quite quickly. This whole season seems like it's really flown by, and uh, I guess strap in then, huh? Talk to y'all again soon.